0: There are now political attacks attempting to question the legitimacy of scientists and doctors.
1: A federal judge is expected to rule in a case challenging the FDA's approval of an abortion pill some 20 years ago. It's Friday, February 24th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on the case now unfolding in Texas. Also ahead, traveling with an aid flight into government held areas of Syria shows problems that go back before the recent earthquake, like poverty and loss from the civil war. And a year into the war in Ukraine, evidence of alleged war crimes by Russian soldiers is mounting. It's 401. Now this news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The president of Ukraine is urging his country men and women to remain strong as their nation enters a second year of conflict against Russian military invaders. Heard through a BBC interpreter, a defiant Volodymyr Zelensky says he is certain Ukraine will be victorious.
3: We will defeat all threats,
4: shelling, bombs, missiles, kamikaze drones, blackouts, cold, We are stronger than all of this.
2: National pride rang out in Kyiv. The bells of St. Michael's Cathedral chimed at midnight as Ukrainians prayed for survivors as well as the fallen and are reminded that after a year of war, Ukraine still stands. The U.S. and its allies have issued a raft of new sanctions against Russian individuals and companies. NPR's Jackie Northam reports the list also includes dozens of people and organizations helping Russia evade sanctions.
5: The Treasury Department calls this its most significant sanctions action to date to retaliate against the Kremlin for its war in Ukraine. It targets more than 200 Russian companies and individuals, including many governors. It adds the country's metal and mining sectors and more than a dozen financial institutions to the sanctions roster, as well as defense and technology companies military hardware. In addition, the U.S. and its allies also blacklist scores of individuals and companies from countries such as China, Switzerland, and the United Arab Emirates that are helping Russia evade current sanctions. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington.
2: The Commerce Department is reporting higher than expected inflation last month. NPR's Scott Horsley has more on that.
5: The Commerce
6: Department's inflation yardstick, which is closely watched by the Federal Reserve, shows January prices were up 5.4 percent from a year ago. Excluding food and energy prices, so-called core inflation was 4.7 percent. Prices rose six-tenths of a percent between December and January. Rising prices don't appear to be turning off shoppers. Personal spending jumped 1.8 percent last month, outpacing the gain in personal income. Americans spent more on cars, restaurant meals, and pharmaceuticals. The prospect of lingering inflation is once again pushing up mortgage rates. The average rate on a 30-year home loan is now 6.5 percent, the highest in three months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
2: Rare winter storms continue to wreak havoc in the Midwest and West and Southern California as blizzard warnings took effect. Freeways were shut down. The National Weather Service's local weather alert tweeted warnings of possible water spouts and small tornadoes because of the storms. Much of Portland, Oregon, remains shut down today because of icy roads. Michigan at one point reported more than 800,000 homes and businesses without power because of this week's storms. You're listening to NPR News.
1: This is ninety point nine WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Talking today, Ukrainians are in, here in Massachusetts, are mourning on the one year anniversary of Russia's all-out invasion of their country. Ivanka Roberts is president of the Ukrainian Cultural Center of New England.
2: Last night around 9 p.m. I felt anxiety more than usual. And I couldn't understand what was happening. And then I realized that that was exactly a year ago. I started getting notification about rockets flying towards Ukraine.
1: She says today is a sad day for all of her fellow Ukrainians. Still, she says she feels optimistic Ukraine will ultimately win the war. Governor Mara Healy will appoint an advisory council on black empowerment on Monday. Her office announced that decision today. More than 30 black leaders will make up the council. They will voice the needs of the state's black community. The council will advise the governor on matters like education, health care, workforce development, and housing. Healy says the new effort is designed to remove barriers to opportunity that black residents often face. Cold weather is making a comeback in the Boston area. Temperatures will be in the single digits overnight, and we don't expect to be above freezing until Sunday. When people try alternative heating methods during cold snaps, emergency calls for carbon monoxide poisoning increase. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more on what you can do to avoid making one.
7: Carbon monoxide is an invisible, odorless gas released when fossil fuels burn. To avoid poisoning, don't use gas-burning generators, kerosene lanterns, or other unventilated open flames inside your home or garage. UMass medical toxicologist Dr. Powell Graham says symptoms might start with a headache or fatigue.
8: And then as they progress, they can cause things like chest pain and confusion and seizure and dizziness, and ultimately people can lose consciousness or actually die.
7: Graham says carbon monoxide can also cause long-term brain and nerve damage. He recommends installing carbon monoxide detectors near sleeping areas. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
1: And it will be cold tonight, mostly clear, very cold, low of 8 degrees. The wind chill will make it feel much, much colder. We'll have increasing clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of snow. After 4 p.m., the high will be near 22, but again, that wind chill will make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy with a chance of snow on Sunday. No accumulation is expected. The highs will be around 37 degrees. Mostly sunny on Monday, the high around 35. Right now, it's 29 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public.
10: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A federal judge in Texas is expected to rule in a case challenging the Food and Drug Administration's approval of an abortion pill some 20 years ago. If the judge sides with the anti-abortion group that brought the case, and he is expected to, it could have ripple effects on drug approvals as we know them. Well, NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here in the studio to explain. Welcome, Sydney. Hi. Okay, I want to start with the stakes because I'm trying to understand how this one case... About just one pill has the potential to change how the FDA okays medicines. Mm -hmm. The case is over mifeprestone, which is used
12: in first trimester medication abortions in combination with another pill called misoprostol. The anti-abortion group that's suing, Alliance Defending Freedom, is basically saying that the FDA never had the authority to approve mifeprestone in the first place. They say the way the agency approved it required them to call pregnancy an illness, which it is not. I spoke to Harvard Medical School's meat sarpetwari.
13: But the preamble to this rule makes it clear that what FDA meant was conditions or diseases that can be serious for certain populations in some or all of their phases, uh, which would include pregnancy.
12: The lawsuit is also questioning whether the FDA correctly considered safety and effectiveness when it granted this approval, which is interesting for a drug that's been on the market for 20 years. Indeed. Vice President Kamala Harris talked about that this morning
0: most americans could look in their medicine cabinet where they will find medication prescribed by a doctor that they use on a daily basis and have available to them because the fda engaged in a process of determining the efficacy and safety of that medication mifepristone is no exception to that process
12: She said those who attack that process should look in their medicine cabinets and be prepared for the repercussions of those decisions.
11: Hmm. Okay, Sydney, practically speaking, what would change if the judge, as expected, does rule in favor of the anti-abortion group?
12: Well, part of what could change is that women could only get one kind of medication abortion, using one pill at the second one, which is less effective and more painful. And it could also set this precedent for court interference in FDA expert decision making. So for the last 60-odd years, the FDA has been the global leader in approving drugs based on rigorous safety and effectiveness standards. And now a court could, like, undo that. So that could have a chilling effect on the FDA, which broadly doesn't have the resources to get sued a lot. It's expensive to the taxpayer. It limits other things the agency can do. So the FDA might be more cautious about approvals. Here's Sarpetwari again.
13: If a court is willing to say in the face of this evidence that this drug is not safe or is ineffective, then what else might it potentially say is unsafe or ineffective?
12: And in a politically charged climate, that could mean drugs for future hormone therapies, for gender-affirming care, PrEP for HIV prevention. So those drug companies might not want to invest in the development to begin with if that you know, risk is that the court could just overturn the approval anyway. And the FDA, again, not wanting to be sued,
11: might look backwards in time and do withdrawals. In a case where the stakes are so high, as you've just filled in, um, do we expect that, however the judge rules, there will be an appeal?
12: So yes, I'm told this will likely go to an appeals court and make it all the way up to the Supreme Court, according to Robin Feldman at UC Law SF. It seems like this was basically written for the Supreme Court. So in the meantime, another case has been filed today, actually by several states' attorneys general, challenging the FDA's restrictions on mifepristone that have been in place since its approval. And they're arguing the drug is safe and effective, and those restrictions aren't really necessary. I'm told they could file an injunction against the FDA to prevent it from removing the drug from the market. So you really have these like dueling lawsuits, one by conservatives and one by
11: Democrat-led states. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin, thank you. Thank you.
10: We have a rare look now at the earthquake damage inside the government-controlled part of Syria. Few outside journalists have been able to get there. It's a nearly closed country for reporters and tightly controlled. But the quake damage is extensive, and the needs stretch back far beyond that. NPR's Aya Batrawi went there on a relief flight run by the government of the United Arab Emirates. She joins us from the Syrian city of Jabla. And first, tell us more about where you are and what you're seeing.
14: Yeah, well, first of all, we don't quite understand what the death toll is in the government parts of Syria. There haven't been any recent figures, but one doctor told me that in the area that I'm at, the Latakia government on the Mediterranean coast, there have been 805 deaths and over 1,300 hospitalizations. And in other areas of Syria, it is far worse in the north. However, we have seen um, collapsed buildings, buildings that are cracked and unlivable, but the real devastation here is from the Civil War. And that is what struck me because this is a government stronghold, an area where the government is firmly in control. But this is clearly a country that has been run down by 12 years of conflict. Homes in this area of Jeble, south of Latakia, where I was today, and where I'm speaking to you from, are half-built, shoddy construction. There's unfinished stairways. And so many of these homes are barely standing after the earthquakes, and they're unlivable. There was a family I met that is sleeping next to the rubble of a home where people died. And kids are sleeping together under a tarp. Um, There's wild dogs roaming around at night. It's, It's still bitter cold outside. And the mothers I spoke to tell me they're not even sleeping at all.
10: Wow. I understand you went out with relief workers from the Emirati Red Crescent and met people who were struggling. What did they tell you?
14: Yeah, I went to these villages and towns far outside of the cities where there's almost no outside visibility. And Ari, people tell me all they want is to secure food for their kids and a safe future for them. But people are suffering. I mean, every home I visited eventually at one point or another... Grown men and women would break into tears about their situation. One woman opened her fridge for me, and um, this is, you know, something she was embarrassed to show me. There was no food inside. She told me for breakfast she'd had some olives and tea. Um, I saw kids who don't go to school because their parents can't even afford paper and pencils for them. I mean, schools here are free. and you walk around and you see that there's no stores. There's, there's maybe small stands with potatoes, tomatoes, and onions, but even few people can afford that. And there's certainly no butcher shops, no clothing stores, playgrounds. The city is dark at night, the electricity is patchy, and that's all because of the war.
10: Hmm. Big picture. What are the longer-term reasons for the economic problems that you're seeing?
14: Yeah, I mean, look, Syria's bombing of the opposition prompted some pretty wide-scale U.S. sanctions, but those are supposed to allow for humanitarian supplies and medicine. The reality is different, of course. Banks would rather not deal with Syria at all. And so the result is a lack of critical aid. I met with Dr. Hawazin Makhlouf. He's a senior physician at one of the hospitals here in Latakia. (laughs) He says they're missing MRI machines, CAT scan machines, heartbeat monitoring machines, and medicines for cancer, even anesthesia. He says all of this is difficult to bring in. They're unable to purchase these these things to bring them in. Um, And as I crisscrossed villages and towns here, I was talking to people about how much they're earning a month, what are they living off of, and families of six and more were telling me they earn 100,000 liras a month. That's around $14 a month for an entire family. And before the war, that amount would have been $2,000 a month. And so what I saw the Emirati Relief Forces here doing today on the ground goes far beyond earthquake relief. They were giving out cash in hand to people who cannot afford cancer treatment. They were giving out boxes of food to orphans. And people I met here were asking me, when's the government coming to help? Or, you know, when, do you know when the government is going to come check on our home? And um, it just shows that they haven't seen any help yet from the government.
10: That's NPR's Aya Batraoui in Jabla, Syria. Thank you.
14: Thanks, Ari.
11: Last night, Dr. Meredith Gray said goodbye to Seattle and Gray Sloan Memorial Hospital. So the end of my story is not any kind of ever after. Because I'm still alive. I'm still here.
15: And the sun still rises on my life.
10: Dr. Grey, played by actress Ellen Pompeo, will be stepping back from ABC's hit medical drama, Grey's Anatomy, after 19 seasons and more than 400 episodes. Pompeo's character is leaving for Boston. Pompeo herself will stay on as an executive producer.
11: Back in December, Pompeo had told Drew Barrymore she was ready to do something new. I feel super happy. Really? Yes. Um,
16: but... Listen, the show has been incredible to me and and I love, I've loved a lot of the experience. Listen, it's just, I, I gotta, you know, I gotta mix it up a little bit.
10: Gray will be remembered for her many close calls with death, her deep friendships, and her enduring romance with Dr. Derek Shepherd.
17: Derek, I love you
18: in a really, really big pretend to like your taste in music. Let you eat the last piece of cheesecake. Hold a radio over my head outside your window. Unfortunate way that makes me hate you. Love you. So pick me. Choose me. Love me.
11: Uh, Ah, McDreamy. Well, her last episode, as the show's lead, came to an understated conclusion. There were no epic montages, no flashbacks, no guest appearances from former cast members, not even a refrain from chasing cars.
10: There was, however, a celebration at the hospital where the show's last two original characters paid tribute to Dr. Gray. Here's Dr. Miranda Bailey and Dr. Richard Weber.
0: You know, once upon a time, you were the bane of my existence. But no, you grew up to become one of my greatest points of pride. I'm... Okay, go, go.
19: Dr. Gray, what Dr. Bailey's trying to say is this place won't be the same without you.
11: We will still hear her character narrate episodes, as she's done for many of them, and she could visit every now and then. But for many Grey's Anatomy fans, the show just won't be the same without Meredith.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 29 degrees in Boston at 419. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, a conversation with former Mexican Ambassador Arturo Sacurin about the potential changes to that country's electoral process. That's ahead here on WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down about 1% at 32,817. The S&P 500 also down 1% at 3970. And the Nasdaq was off almost 1.7% at 11,395. In other business news, workers at another Starbucks in Massachusetts are seeking to unionize. Employees at the Somerville Avenue location in Somerville today filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board. Nationwide, more than 285 stores have taken steps to unionize. The employees in Somerville say they want higher wages and better benefits. It's 419.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Turn your old car into new news.
21: Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at
1: wbur.org cars cars. Check in back on the news with WBUR again later this afternoon and this evening. Check. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're running errands or heading home from work. In the forecast, it's going to be very cold tonight, low of eight degrees. The wind chill will make it feel much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of snow after 4 p.m. The highs will be around 22. Again, the wind chill will make it colder. Right now, 29 degrees in Boston.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at
11: nervivehealth.com.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A year ago today... In the early morning, Russia invaded Ukraine. Intelligence officials in the West had expected the capital, Kiev, to fall in days. And while that grim prediction did not come true, the past year has brought plenty of heartache. It's also brought mounting evidence of alleged war crimes by Russian soldiers. We're going to zoom in now on one week at the end of March 2022, when the suburbs around Kiev were liberated after a month of occupation by Russian troops.
8: Weir heard stories of Russians targeting civilians, of mass graves, of summary executions, of finding dead civilians. That's NPR's Nathan Rott, who was in Ukraine at the time. We knew that that was kind of happening, but nobody had really been to these areas to kind of see what was left.
11: The town of Bucha, northwest of Kyiv, had just been liberated, and Nate was among busloads of reporters driven in to see it. And a warning to listeners, this story contains graphic descriptions of
8: violence. Every window had been blasted out, bridges that had been destroyed like giant craters in the ground that you could park a car in. And there was one street that we walked down in particular where there was so much ash on the street. It felt like you were walking on sand. You know, it felt like you were walking on the beach. And that was just ash from burnt homes and burnt equipment uh, in the middle of the city streets. At the end of that street, we just saw a guy who was kind of sitting outside watching all of us journalists walk around and take pictures and everything. and. I just kind of walked up to him and started talking to him with the help of our translator Luca, and uh, and the guy was just immediately like, "Follow me."
22: You want to
8: come in here? You know, we walked through his yard to his backyard, over broken glass, and the whole side of his house is blasted open. I mean, it almost looks like a kid's dollhouse where you can like see the cross section of the house. You're like looking in it. I mean, the whole side of the house was gone. When Russian troops first came into Bucha, his story that he told us was that essentially, like, they threw a grenade into his house, yelled for people to come out, started a fire that was in their living room. I started uh,
23: extinguishing the fire. I tried to. You can see it right
8: there. Fire happened. He and his daughter and his son-in-law had raced outside and were trying to Put out the fire.
23: There's three soldiers. They they yelled. They yelled at us. Said uh, hands up. I we showed them our hands. Walked
8: out. And Russian troops came up, started questioning him, asking him, where are the Nazis, where are the Nazis, where are the Nazis? And, you know, they were all like, we're not Nazis, I don't know what you're talking about. He had this horrific story. Of basically, his son-in-law was um, taken out through his front gate.
23: So they took uh, my daughter's husband, Oleg, outside. They uh, ripped the clothes off him. Put him on the knees and shoot him in the head. And his
8: body laid there for weeks, um, right in front of right in front of his
23: house. I was in the mood of sitting after sitting in a month in the basement to just uh, I wanted to walk outside and just to get shot because I couldn't deal
22: with it anymore. It,
8: the language war crime was being used everywhere. Ukrainians, from the first time we got off the bus in Bucha, they were like, we are here to show you American Russian war crimes. I think a lot of international leaders, right after Bucha, that's when you started hearing war crimes. Uh, like, that was the the moment that put that kind of into a, the conversation, I feel like.
11: That was NPR's Nathan Rott. Another journalist who spent time in Bucha speaking with survivors was Masha Gessen, a staff writer at The New
24: Yorker. For Gessen, that work came with a deep sense of deja vu. I had done this kind of work 20 and 30 years earlier in, in Chechnya, uh, during the first war in Chechnya in 1994, 1996, during the second war in Chechnya in 99, 2001, And I had seen Russian troops behaving this way, and I had interviewed survivors of Russian war crimes who had told the same kinds of stories in Chechnya as they were now telling me in Ukraine. And um, I knew that it is normal for the Russian military to behave this way. This is how Russia prosecutes wars.
11: Morning Edition host Leila Fadel spoke with Gessen about their experience reporting on war crimes and the aftermath.
25: When it comes to accountability, does that what does that look like? Can it go as as high as Putin and is there a way to hold the president of Russia accountable?
24: So for some people it's most important to see Putin and people who actually gave important orders prosecuted. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen unless Russia is militarily defeated. I think for some other people, it is more important to see the people who pulled the trigger, the people who fired, who personally fired rockets at apartment buildings, the people who personally tortured, raped, and executed civilians mm. to be prosecuted. There's an argument that that's not so important because they're not in charge. They're just part of this giant sort of organism that carries out aggression. But there's a counter-argument that the whole reason that this is possible is because individuals are never punished.
25: Hmm. I mean, Russia has, you describe, documenting these same kinds of crimes in Chechnya. Then again, they happened in Aleppo, and there has never been accountability or a red line crossed that the world has reacted to in this way. Why?
24: The facile answer is that the world doesn't care as much about um, Chechnya, which is Muslim, an obscure part of Russia. I'm afraid the same can be said of Syria. The world doesn't care as much about people perceived as non-white and and Muslim. I think that there's a lot of truth to what I just said. I don't think uh, it's—it's not the complete answer. Yeah. It also has a lot to do with opportunity. It was nearly impossible for international investigators and journalists to get to Adyapo, to get to Chechnya during the Second War in Chechnya. The Russian human rights group Memorial did bring a number of cases to the European Court on Human Rights against Russian war criminals in Chechnya and won some of those cases. But the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction over what Russia was doing and what is legally its own territory. So part of it is access, part of it is jurisdictional issues. Ukraine is, in a, you know, it sounds horrible to say it, but there's in a way an opportunity to finally hold Russia accountable for what its military has been committing systematically for at least 30 years.
11: That's Masha Gessen, staff writer at The New Yorker, speaking with Morning Edition host Leila Fadl. And you can hear more reflections on the war in Ukraine by checking your local member station for NPR's special report, Russia's War in Ukraine One Year On. To find your member station, go to npr.org stations.
10: This is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 28 degrees in Boston at 429. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, singer-songwriter Iris Dement has gained a cult following of folk, gospel, and country music fans. She has a new album coming out, and we'll have a preview. That's ahead here on WBUR. The forecast mostly clear. Very cold tonight. The low will be 8 degrees, but the wind chill will make it feel much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow. Slight chance of some snow after 4 p.m., the high 22, but again, that wind chill will make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy with a chance of snow on Sunday. No accumulation is expected. The highs will be around 37. We're funded by you, our
26: listeners, and by the ICA. Warm up with family fun this season. Interactive art and reading spaces, plus an exhibition inspired by childhood, ICABoston.org.
21: On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we put the important questions to Stephen Colbert. Is it weird to have all that awkward sex on camera with Adam Driver. <laughs> it's not weird. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Peter Sagal. Join us for an all-star Wait Wait this week with Stephen, Michaela Schifrin, Rob Reiner, basically everybody but Adam Driver. Join us for the news
26: quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR.
27: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The world is marking one year since Russia launched a full-scale, unprovoked attack on Ukraine. Speaking at the United Nations today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called on members of the Security Council to maintain support for Ukraine as the conflict enters its next uncertain phase.
1: In this war, there is an aggressor and there is a victim.
6: Russia fights for conquest. Ukraine fights for its freedom.
1: If Russia stops fighting and leaves Ukraine, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends.
27: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today described the invasion as a morally charged battle, pledging that Ukrainian forces will continue to fight with the help of Western arms. The Biden administration has announced an additional $2 billion package for Ukraine, including laser-guided rocket systems. As the invasion enters its second year, NPR's Frank Langfitt takes a look at the damage and political impact of the biggest war in Europe since 1945.
26: The wars killed or wounded more than 200,000 soldiers, according to American estimates. It sent millions of Ukrainians fleeing abroad, though many have returned. Russian President Vladimir Putin said his, quote, special military operation was designed, among other things, to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO. NATO has responded to the invasion by sending more than $40 billion in weapons to Ukraine. And Eastern Europeans see the Ukrainian army as protecting them from Putin. But Russian forces still have a numerical advantage. And some Ukrainian soldiers worry about their ability to hold off a new Russian offensive. This trench and artillery war is expected to grind on well into the second year and perhaps beyond. Frank Langford, NPR News, Kiev.
27: You're listening to NPR News in Washington.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss says as the world marks a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, Americans need to continue to support Ukraine with whatever they need right now. He spoke today on WBUR's Radio Boston. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more on what the congressman says that kind of support means.
22: Auchincloss says Ukraine is likely to mount a counteroffensive attack this spring, and the success of that action is crucial for Ukraine to make positive ground in the war.
8: We need to support Ukraine getting all the way to the sea and being able to cut off Russia's access to Crimea as the End of the beginning, I guess I would say, so that we can move on to a stage where Ukraine can start to actually um, retake Crimea and the Donbass.
22: In the meantime, Auchincloss says financial and moral support for Ukraine is pivotal as the country enters year two of this invasion. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland.
1: The city of Somerville will open an overnight warming center tonight and tomorrow. That's to protect those experiencing homelessness against the cold spell. Wind chill values are expected to drop below zero tonight and tomorrow. The warming center will be located in the Armory Building. The MBTA has had a busy two days dealing with commute disruptions. Ice buildup on the rails forced Orange Line trains to stop outside of Wellington Station last night. And then this morning, a piece of repair equipment derailed on the red line near Park Street. Interim T. General Manager Jeff Gonville says the agency is investigating what happened and planning for solutions.
13: We may not have all of the answers right now, but I want to be very clear that we are working on developing those solutions and fully recognize that we owe our customers who are relying on the system every single day those answers that they certainly want and deserve.
1: Both incidents required shuttle buses to be used. The Boston region's drinking water provider will temporarily stop adding fluoride to the water of its member communities starting later this month. The Massachusetts Water Resources Authority says the move is being done so crews can replace pipes and equipment at a water treatment plant that feeds Metro West and Greater Boston. The elimination of fluoride will last up to three months. Water systems often add the mineral to help people protect dental health. Dental health professionals say people served by the MWRA will not need to take any additional action during this time. It's, fu- it's
20: 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com.
1: In the forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight, a low of 8 degrees. The wind chill will make it seem much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of snow after 4 p.m. The highs will be 22. Again, the wind chill will make it feel colder. Right now it's 28 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. If voting is a pillar of democracy, then is cutting spending on elections a threat to the strength of a country's democracy? That's at the heart of a debate in Mexico right now. A new law waiting to be signed by the president would slash the budget of Mexico's National Electoral Institute. Critics of the law say these cuts would undermine election integrity. The president supports the changes. Former Mexican ambassador to the U.S. Arturo Sarucon opposes them. Ambassador Sarucon, welcome back to All Things Considered
19: it's a great pleasure to be with you Ari.
10: why do you object to these proposed changes
19: well because it's taken mexicans two generations to uh, finally move mexico in the direction of a, a modern free fair electoral system and the national electoral institute ine by its acronym in spanish the elections watchdog has been responsible for the modernization of mexican democracy For the past three decades. It's allowed for the alternation of power between three different political parties. And at the end of the day, these changes put Mexicans' right to vote in free, fair and credible elections at risk.
10: Now, President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador says the money that is saved through these changes could go to help the poor. What is your sense of why he wants to strip back the electoral institute?
19: The money saved is about 0.1% of the federal budget. So it's minimal. The reason why Lopsovralor wants to weaken this is because he holds a big grudge against the National Electoral Institute. He argues that the Electoral Institute was piece and parcel of what he still claims was a stolen election back in 2006, despite the European Union underscored that the election had been tight, but it had been free and fair, and since 2006, President López Obrador has held a grudge against the Electoral Institute. As his party lost eight of the largest 10 metropolitan cities in Mexico's midterms two years ago, he is slightly concerned about what may happen in 2024, Mexico's next presidential elections, and many, including yours truly, believe that at the heart of his attempt to eviscerate and weaken Mexico's National Electoral Institute, is his attempt to ensure that he can control the potential outcome of the elections and to eliminate a level playing field in the 2024 presidential elections in Mexico. So let's imagine
10: that this law does pass and President López Obrador's term comes to an end. New presidential elections take place next year. What do you expect the elections to look like?
19: Well, certainly the fact that it would preclude the National Electoral Institute from preventing government officials from campaigning, which is forbidden in Mexico if you're in an elected politician or you're in the uh, government uh, as a civilian bureaucrat or as a political appointee, you cannot campaign on behalf of a political party. Elimin- el- eliminating some of these um, mechanisms that Ina has in place today would dilute the ability to monitor that from happening it would dilute the ability to ensure that parties are not spending more than what they should be spending in the political campaign when you don't have citizen monitors in the polling booths any type of hanky-panky can 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 take place it would really be a step backwards in how mexico has really modernized its electoral processes and uh, presidential elections and at this point is it more or less a done deal no, the opposition has underscored that they will present an injunction before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would have the last say. Now, the question is whether the president publishes the law as it was approved by his simple majority that his party and, and their allies have in Congress, whether he does it in such a way that allows the Supreme Court to deliberate and make ruling in time. But obviously, the big question is that these very fundamental changes to the law, are are being done less than a year and months to go before the next presidential election.
10: That's former Mexican ambassador to the US, Arturo Sarukan. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure.
11: A crew of four people is set to take off for the International Space Station on Sunday. NASA and SpaceX are working to prepare the rocket and capsule, but there's one critical thing every launch needs before leaving the planet a mission patch. Brendan Byrne of member station WMFE brings us the story of the patches sewn into the historical fabric of spaceflight.
28: In a factory situated in the shadows of the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, robotic sewing needles rise and plunge at blurring fast speeds, weaving blue, orange, and black thread into a three and a half inch circular patch.
6: We don't always have a NASA patch running, but we got one running right now.
21: So, Expedition 67, which, as you would know, then is my current favorite patch.
28: Andrew Nagel is the co-CEO of AB Emblem, a manufacturing company that's been in the family for five generations. Since Apollo 11, the mission that took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the lunar surface, this company has provided patches for NASA. Owner Bernie Conrad says the first ones were manufactured on embroidery looms, hand-threaded. Now the process is mostly automated.
29: We started off with machines that were like eight heads, 12 heads, now we're up to 44 heads, God knows where it's going to go in the
28: next years." The origins of mission patches date back to spaceflight's early days. In the Mercury program, astronauts named their capsule as a way to personalize the mission. During NASA's Gemini program, that tradition went away. Gemini astronaut Gordon Cooper still wanted to do something, says Robert Perlman, historian and editor of CollectSpace.com.
1: He came to NASA and proposed to them and said, well, let us at least personalize something about our mission. Let's design a patch.
28: That mission aimed to set a space endurance record of eight days. Its mission patch was a Conestoga wagon with the crew's names, Cooper and his crewmate Pete Conrad embroidered below. And Perlman says hidden beneath some fabric sewn into the patch was the inscription 8 days or bust, which only was revealed once the capsule returned successfully. The tradition of the crew designing each patch continued through Apollo and the shuttle program. Even today, astronauts play a crucial role, sometimes even drawing the artwork for the final piece.
10: The crew patch is really special for so many reasons.
28: NASA astronaut Woody Hoberg is piloting the SpaceX Dragon capsule on the upcoming Crew-6 mission. His mission patch is a blue naval ship with a dragon as its figurehead navigating the constellation Draco. Dragon and Draco, a call to the crew's capsule. The patch, says Hoberg, represents more than the crew of four. It recognizes the thousands of people working on their flight.
30: It's great to have patches and be able to, like, hand them out to the, the teams that have supported us along the way. It's a little memento that, that we find meaningful and therefore um, has meaning when
13: we, when we hand it out to people or wear it on our flight suits.
28: And they're not just for those directly involved on the mission. Patch collecting is a wildly popular hobby for space enthusiasts. AD Emblem's Bernie Conrad says when the shuttle program ended in 2011, interest in Patches faded. But as new human missions, like the Crew-6, take flight, he's optimistic that Patch Passion will return.
19: If we go to Mars, in other words, this could go through a period of time there where it's, is this lull, but something like that, that would again ignite the interest, or if we went back to the moon even.
28: With NASA planning a human mission to the moon this decade, Conrad's company will get the chance to make another lunar patch just like a half century ago. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Weaverville, North Carolina.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Biden administration has set a goal to permit 25 gigawatts of renewable energy production on federal land by 2025. But one proposal for a big wind project on federal land in Idaho is facing significant local opposition. Boise State Public Radio's Rachel Cohen reports.
18: The site of the proposed wind farm outside of Twin Falls is high desert. Lots of sagebrush and cheatgrass with outcroppings of lava rock from extinct volcanoes. But local rancher John Arcush says there's plenty of good grazing for cattle.
31: This is bulbous
19: bluegrass. There's all kinds of native species out here too.
18: Arkush is one of several ranchers who lease this land from the Federal Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, to raise cattle. A New York company, LS Power, wants to build one of the biggest wind farms in the country here, up to 400 wind turbines across 76,000 acres. The company says it can mitigate impacts to ranchers, but Arcush is skeptical.
19: There's seven different ranches that run on this allotment alone. My own, There's four generations, four families that depend on this area for our livelihood.
18: This project, called Lava Ridge, is exactly the type the Biden administration says is needed to transition the country's energy supply away from fossil fuels in order to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. The one gigawatt of power generated here could supply more than 300,000 homes.
32: Already, permitted renewable energy projects on BLM-managed lands include more than 130 wind, solar, and geothermal projects.
18: Department of Interior Secretary Deb Haaland touted progress to Western governors late last year.
32: A sustainable, clean energy economy isn't just an idea. It's here. It's happening.
18: But there's opposition to Lava Ridge. Recently, about 300 people gathered in an airplane hangar to let the BLM know their feelings.
21: I mean, my God, did you go up here?
26: I did. Do
18: you care about what happens to us? I do. My God, I don't believe you.
33: That's why I'm here.
18: And it's not just local ranchers who are fighting the wind farm.
33: Just based on basic human rights, I have to oppose this.
18: Karen Misako Hirai Olin was born near the site in what at the time was an incarceration camp where the U.S. government sent Japanese Americans during World War II. It's now a National Historic Site. 13,000 people were imprisoned there. Hirai Olin says the turbines nearby would fundamentally change the experience of going there and imagining the hardships of the incarcerated.
33: They wouldn't build this outside of Arlington National Cemetery. They wouldn't build this on the Washington Mall. And to me, this site is just as sacred.
18: Ellis Power says it's open to moving the turbines further from the historic site. It says construction will pump $500 million into the local economy and generate $4 million a year in local taxes. Still, county commissioners oppose the wind farm, and the governor and other elected officials told the BLM it needs some big changes to win their support. Zheng Chun, a lecturer at MIT, studies opposition to renewable energy projects and says a temptation is to overlook local concerns for the greater good of solving the climate crisis.
8: I'm sure many of those people who are actually the policymakers probably weren't even aware that such local opposition could actually be detrimental to their plans. His
18: research shows local pushback frequently delays or cancels projects or gets them tied up in lawsuits, so proponents need to take it seriously. A decision on this one is expected in the fall. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Cohen.
11: It's All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 28 degrees in Boston at 449. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll check in with the parents of twin boys who were evacuated as newborns from Ukraine in the first days of the war. That's ahead here on WBUR. Coming to City Space on Thursday, March 9th, Julian Shapiro Barnum, host of the web series Recess Therapy, featuring hilarious interviews with kids. You can get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In sports, the Red Sox got in the win column today in their first exhibition game of spring training. The Sox beat Northeastern University 5-3 to three today in Fort Myers. The Sox will play the Braves tomorrow to kick off the formal preseason.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com
30: Priya Gunn's new novel is inspired by the movie Taxi Driver. She says it's written for short attention spans.
34: Because I'm thinking about people I grew up with, the people from my block who don't have the time necessarily to read because they're working.
30: Maria Guns on her novel, Your Driver is Waiting, a conversation and the latest news Saturday and weekend edition from NPR News.
26: Tomorrow morning at 8 on
10: 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Roald Dahl's publisher in the UK has responded to a fierce debate. The Puffin imprint had made changes to Dahl's original language for new editions of his books. Critics accused the publisher of censorship. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more.
35: It all started when the Daily Telegraph reported that hundreds of changes had been made. In Matilda, Miss Trunchball no longer has a great horsey face. In James and the Giant Peach, the Cloud Men are now Cloud People. And in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, fat is no longer used to describe Augustus Gloop.
13: What are you at getting terribly fat? What do you think will come of that?
35: Yeah, that song from the 1971 movie probably wouldn't make the cut. Puffin worked with the Roald Dahl Story Company and an organization called Inclusive Minds to remove words some of today's readers might find offensive. An affront to democracy, wrote one Telegraph reader. An exercise in priggish stupidity, wrote the Sydney Morning Herald. Dahl's publishers in the U.S., France, and Holland said they would not carry the changed editions. And now, Puffin says, it'll just publish both versions, the edited and the originals. Suzanne Nossel, CEO of Pan America, says the debate made a difference.
2: We need to be able to read things, talk about things. Uh, The answer is not to silence and suppress. And if this debate over Rawl Dahl reinforces that notion, it will have made a real contribution.
35: Rawl Dahl has faced controversy before. His anti-Semitism and racism surface periodically. As Salman Rushdie put it, Dahl was no angel, but this is absurd censorship. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
10: It's been more than a decade since Iris Dement last released a collection of original songs. Now she's out with Working on a World. It's a country folk album with many of the spiritual themes that thread through her catalog, laced with references to modern issues like gun violence and police brutality. Iowa Public Radio's Clay
3: Masters caught up with her at home in Iowa City. There's really no mistaking the singing voice of Iris Dement. Many of Dement's songs have a spiritual theme.
29: I really believe that I have been given an ability to deliver my songs. Not everybody's going to get them, but there's people that get them and they need them.
3: Dement was born in Arkansas, the youngest of 14 kids, and says she grew up watching her mother ask a lot of questions about their faith, and you can hear that inspiring her songs ever since her 1992 debut album.
36: Everybody. Everybody is worrying about where they're gonna go and the whole thing's done. But no one knows for certain, and so it's all the same to me. I think I'll just let the mystery be.
3: Dement has been nominated for a couple of Grammys, but is far from a household name. Even so, she's authentic as they come, says country music historian and Hall of Famer Marty Stewart.
13: You can listen to most artists and tell who inspired them or where they tipped off from, and there are very few artists that are so original that that is almost non-existent. And when I hear when I hear Iris, it's just a total original.
3: Stewart produced a song that's an introduction for many to Dement's work, a quirky duet from the late '90s that she sang with her longtime collaborator, the late legendary John Prine. Dement remembers when Prine sent her the lyrics to "In Spite of Ourselves."
29: I saw the words and. You know, I came out of the Pentecostal church, and I was like, I can't do this. I mean, like my heart started racing, I can't do this.
3: Here's why.
36: He ain't got late in a month of Sundays. Caught him once, and he was sniffing my undies. He ain't too sharp, but he gets things done. Drinks his beer like it's oxygen. But he's my baby, and I'm his honey. Never gonna let him go.
23: In spite of ourselves, we'll end end up up sitting on a rainbow.
29: And then, of course, everybody loved it. And I've sang it a thousand times since. And I got to where I enjoyed and loved singing it.
3: John Prine died after contracting COVID-19 in the early days of the pandemic. DeMent says he joins a group of important figures in her life that are no longer physically here, but still show up in her music.
29: John was so present when he was here Like a few other people I know, my mom I put in that category, they were so (laughs) here. I mean, I don't want to be all spooky about it, it's not like that, but I feel like I carry him. And that's just a really wonderful feeling.
3: You can hear that presence guiding her in this latest batch of songs. She wrote them these last eight years here at home in Iowa City on her old Mason and Hamlin grand piano, beginning with Working on a World, which she wrote right after the 2016 election.
36: I got so down in trouble I nearly lost my head I started waking every morning Filled with sadness, fear, and dread
29: So I sing that song and I get fortified. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, you know, I'm part of this human family that's been here for a really long time and some number of us is going to go on and I got work to do.
3: Fellow songwriter Anna Egge was excited when Dement showed her these new songs last year. She says they speak to the influence Dement has on musicians like her.
29: I remember one time she said, "Anna, do you think ever, anybody ever asked Johnny Cash who Johnny Cash should be?" And she said, "I don't think so. <laughs> so be who you are, figure that out, and keep figuring that out."
3: Dement says even at 62, all of her songs are little reminders to herself as she keeps figuring her own life out.
29: For some weird reason, the kind of culture we live in makes it even more difficult to remember what we know. My songs, I, I think I write in a way that that's what I'm trying to do for myself, and I use them for myself in that same way, and I send them out in the world.
3: For now, Iris DeMent is back on the road for the first time since before the pandemic, singing her songs for anyone that might also need a few spiritual reminders.
36: A dream come true Way back when we remember that forget again just for a while then recall we somehow we're all here in the sacred now.
3: For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters. And
11: you're listening to All Things Considered.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics with One Fine Morning, a film by Mia Hansen-Love, with Lea Seydoux as a widow, juggling her young daughter, her sick father, and a married friend with whom she sparks an affair. Now playing. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wildlands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR, just a minute before 5 o'clock. Much more ahead on All Things Considered. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear. Very cold tonight, a low of 8 degrees, but the wind chill will make it feel much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow, slight chance of snow after 4 p.m. The high will be around 22, but again, that wind chill will make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy, chance of snow on Sunday. No accumulation is expected. The high will be around 37 degrees. Right now it's 28 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There's so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org.
23: I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
34: The things that scare me now, like safety in the bathtub, it seems so ridiculous to give so much worry to that when their war is still going on.
1: We'll check in with the parents of twin boys who are evacuated as newborns from Ukraine in the first days of the war. It's Friday, February 24th, this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, it was one year ago today, Russian troops invaded neighboring Ukraine. We'll have an update. Also ahead, the big winter storm across much of the U.S. is especially challenging in West Coast cities not accustomed to snow and such low temperatures. It's particularly hard for people without housing. And in 1952, Kurt Vonnegut's first novel, Player Piano, was released, depicting a society where workers had been replaced by machines. Today, some are shocked at how accurate his predictions were. It's 501 Now
31: This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The United States joined G7 leaders today, calling on Moscow to end its war against Ukraine. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the Western leaders marked the anniversary of the Russian invasion by promising unwavering support for the former Soviet Republic. The leaders of
28: the world's wealthiest democracies are calling for a complete and unconditional withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. The leaders met virtually with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on the one-year mark of the war. In a joint statement, the leaders say they will expand sanctions to deny Russia the benefits of G7 economies and promise to take action against third-country parties that support Russia's war on Ukraine. The leaders also say they will ensure that Russia pays for Ukraine's reconstruction, including documenting the damages Russia has inflicted, and they will block Russian assets until there is a resolution to the conflict, one that includes Russia paying for the damages. Franco Ordonez. NPR News.
31: A coalition of Democratic state attorneys general is suing the Food and Drug Administration, accusing the agency of excessively regulating a key medication used to induce abortions. As NPR's Sarah McCammon explains, the suit comes as a federal judge in a separate case. is considering whether to overturn the drug's FDA approval.
16: Mifepristone is part of a two-drug regimen that was approved more than 20 years ago to induce first trimester abortions. The federal lawsuit filed in Washington state by a dozen Democratic state attorneys general targets additional layers of regulation above and beyond typical prescription drugs. The suit accuses the FDA of, quote, singling out mifepristone for a unique set of restrictions. An FDA official says the agency does not comment on ongoing litigation. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. It may
31: not rain much in some parts of California, but how many people have seen snow in San Francisco? Well, today snow lovers got their wish, snow haters not so much, as a winter storm brought snowfall to Marin County. It was only a dusting, but Mill Valley residents Mike and Ann Lemmy traveled to a state park there to get a first hand look.
4: It's amazing. I mean, you know, we come up here all the time, so to see all of the stuff that we're used to seeing covered in snow, it's really bizarre. It's fun.
9: Yeah, even just seeing the trailhead signs, like just seeing the sign for Stinson Beach with the snow falling on it is pretty cool.
31: Other areas probably have a slightly different take. Over 100,000 customers across California are without power due to winter storm. Ice and snow in the Midwest has also left people without power this week. A key inflation gauge closely monitored by the Federal Reserve continued to rise last month, jumping at its fastest pace since last summer in a sign that price pressures in the U.S. economy are likely to be difficult to shake. Consumer prices rose six-tenths of a percent last month from December, up sharply from the two-tenths of a percent rise from November to December. That worried stocks on Wall Street and investors. The Dow dropped 336 points today. You're listening to NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. State transportation officials are explaining why they are changing the timeline for an ongoing renovation project of Boston's Sumner Tunnel. The original schedule had the tunnel shut down from May through September of this year. Instead, the state will completely shut the tunnel down from early July through the end of August. The same will be done again in the summer of 2024. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the new timeline is better for drivers because the closures happen in the time of year when the fewest cars are out on the roads.
31: Therefore, least impacts as far as having
30: travellers running into any additional congestion that might be caused by the project. It's
13: also that time of year where schools are out of session. It takes another element that we would have had to deal with trying to, trying to work around bus routes and make sure
30: that buses were running, takes that right out of the equation.
1: Gulliver says the project will fix structural issues in the tunnel and update its safety and ventilation system. The change schedule will result in higher costs and a delayed completion date, but Gulliver says the project will be more manageable this way. Former Massachusetts Congressman John Olver has died. Olver was elected to the House of Representatives in 1991 and represented Western Massachusetts until his retirement in 2012. An obituary says he died at home in Amherst yesterday at the age of 86. Congressman Jim McGovern says Olver was a friend, colleague, and champion for the people of Massachusetts. Students from colleges and universities around greater Boston are rallying against gun violence in front of the State House this afternoon. Allison Weiner of Brandeis University is one of the organizers of the event. She says the rally is a sign of solidarity for the victims of the Michigan State University shooting. She says they're calling on lawmakers to put pressure on states with less strict gun laws to end gun violence.
37: We are looking really for our Massachusetts representatives here on the federal level to propose... New legislation that could impact uh, the gun laws that are currently in place in more conservative states.
1: Weiner is originally from Michigan. She says the Michigan state shootings were traumatic to the entire community. In sports, both the Bruins and the Celtics are off tonight. Bruins play the Canucks tomorrow out in Vancouver. Celts take on the 76ers tomorrow night in Philadelphia. In the forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight, low of 8 degrees. The wind chill will make it feel much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow, a slight chance of some snow after 4 p.m. The high around 22. Again, the wind chill making it feel much colder. Mostly cloudy with a chance of snow on Sunday. No accumulation is expected. The high will be around 37 degrees. Right now, it's 28 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners and by BetterHelp. Committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things
11: Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Sasha Spector and Irma Nunez will never forget the day the war in Ukraine started. Because for them, that day of tragedy is paired with a more personal, joyful occasion. On the second day of the war, Their twin boys were born to a surrogate in Kiev.
17: I think for both of us, it was the most exciting and traumatic and uh, important event that uh, happened in a very long time, if not over our entire lives. So it's incredibly vivid and memorable.
34: I remember thinking, I've seen this movie before, and I didn't (laughs) like it. Like, this is not my genre.
10: And I wasn't starring in it. (laughs)
34: I mean, this was before the happy ending, of course, when it was unclear yeah. what direction things were going to go.
19: Mm-hmm.
10: It was hard. Here's how that movie played out. One year ago, before Russia invaded Ukraine, Sasha and Irma were home in Chicago. Their babies weren't due for another two months. Then rockets started pummeling Kiev and their surrogate went into labor early. An American team went on a daring rescue mission they called Operation Gemini.
1: We hit uh, two different baby hospitals in Kiev. Both of them
28: were kind of in the middle of the city. Um, It sounded like the shelling had started while we were there.
10: That was Brian Stern speaking with us one year ago. He led the effort to rescue the premature newborns. If
21: dust gets in the room, they're in trouble. If the power goes out in the room, they're in trouble. So bottom line is, is get them out of Kiev.
10: The father, Sasha, flew to Poland, which is where I met him last March. The evacuation team took the babies through artillery fire, checkpoints. Even the weather seemed to be fighting them.
17: Okay. It was like a storm, a winter storm. It's like A snowstorm. It's the, the war didn't want to let them go, but we got them out. So.
10: The war didn't want to let them go.
17: Thanks for, thanks for the good people of Ukraine.
10: Finally, the babies arrived safely in a Polish hospital. But even that wasn't the end of their ordeal. Polish bureaucracy kept the family stuck for months. Until finally... The family of four went home to Chicago. That was May of last year, and now
17: this is Lenny on the on the left and uh, Moise on the amazing. right.
10: Amazing! Hi. Can you wave. Can you wave? Uh-huh. Can you say hi? The parents have been too busy taking care of twin boys to plan a first birthday party. Lenny is dancing. <laughs> I can see that. Lenny has got the moves. But on this anniversary of the baby's extraction from a war zone, we wanted to talk with the parents about their personal experience and how it fits into the larger narrative of the war. So after they put the boys to bed, Sasha and Irma got on the line with us again from Chicago. The happy ending was also a beginning. So what has it been the beginning of? Catch us up.
17: I think eventually it just became what I imagine is regular life for Mm -hmm. every new parent. Just boring. Hey, Sasha, look at Lenny's poop. <laughs> That's the highlight of our day sometimes. You know? <laughs> when you said you wanted to talk to us again, I thought, like, what about like our lives? Are so <laughs>
10: unevent- What's so special? They're
17: so uneventful right now.
34: Or they're special in the way that is common to everyone raising a child. It's amazing. Yeah. It's stressful. I mean, watching Lenny dance is just the most joyful thing mm-hmm. I've experienced a long time. But also, you know, we don't sleep very much and we get crabby.
10: <laughs> That's true. So Lenny is the dancer. What's Moisha's personality?
17: Moysha is like a, I, I, I would say a, a little tank if it wasn't too close to home. But uh, he's very <laughs> straightforward. We don't
10: want to use war metaphors, right? <laughs>
17: That's right. A little Ukrainian tank. Powerful, straightforward, very strong.
34: Headstrong. Yeah. He knows what he wants, and he's fearless going after it.
17: You know, they're completely different in their personalities. And that was one of the things we would discover on a daily basis.
10: I know that early on there were concerns about, you know, dust and debris from rocket attacks affecting the lungs of newborn babies. And, of course, they had this harrowing evacuation through a snowstorm and in their first days of life. Yeah. Can you tell whether that has had any impact on them whether that has lasting consequences is there any way of knowing
17: fortunately only on us Hmm. at least the way we understand them yeah and um I think we've been tremendously lucky in that respect
34: um I think a year ago my big concerns were our son's survival but now when I think about the the things that scare me now like Safety in the bathtub. Right. <laughs> it seems so ridiculous to 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 give so much uh, worry to that when their war is still going on. It's been a year.
10: But what mm-hmm. a gift to be able to worry about only the same things that every parent worries about and not also the thing that parents in wars worry about.
34: Oh, absolutely.
10: Right. You say jokingly the impact was only on us, but it did have an impact on you. What was that impact?
17: So on one hand, it's an incredibly personal event. But for us, I think it happened in a way that you know it all of a sudden expanded my understanding of of history, of the place where we live. It's as if the room all of a sudden lit up hmm. and we saw things that we would not uh, be aware of before. you know our our sounds are intricately connected to what's happening in Ukraine right now.
10: And so, do you mean you understand the news differently? What do you mean specifically? Of
17: course, I mean I'm from Ukraine originally, and so as so many other people, we're incredibly worried and connected. But I think for us, it, it's also a place where our sons were born. My mom was—I was just speaking to her, and she's like, "Oh my god! Like we had to leave Ukraine, and somehow your boys went back to Ukraine and were born there." <laughs>
10: Your family left as Jewish refugees when it was part of the Soviet Union, right? That's right. Yeah, In 89. In 89. So. How has the last year changed the way you see yourselves and each other?
34: I've always known Sasha is a strong, um, brilliant, resourceful person. But to see him in action it just blew me away. Okay. I told him like 10 minutes ago, I don't want to cry on NPR.
17: <laughs> sorry. yeah, we, we agreed that there will be no tears. No
34: but, but some
10: stories just you have no choice. I'm sorry.
17: it's true. Um, Irma is an amazing mom. like it uh, just watching her with kids is incredible for me. And uh, I feel talking about safety. I feel safe when I see the kids with her. And it's a certain safety of our family being safe, knowing that uh, there's so many people who are not safe. And it's something that uh, I think we enjoy with, with, with a new sense of responsibility that we might not have had a year ago.
34: Yeah. And just for the record, that was part two of my answer, was seeing you actually be a dad to them, being with them. There's no one they like more than Sasha, (laughs) it's it's
10: true. Irma Nunez and Sasha Spector, their twin boys, Lenny and Moishe, turn one year old this Saturday.
11: winter storm that has closed roads and knocked out power across much of the country is particularly hard on the west coast testing people in places not used to snow and freezing temperatures it can be dangerous even deadly for people who don't have permanent housing or live in tents and vehicles in places like portland oregon which has seen nearly a foot of snow oregon public broadcasting's conrad wilson reports you spent the night out here
30: yeah. why was that that's where I live. That's where you live. What's your name? Rebecca Martell has been without a house for the past decade. And for the last several years, she's lived in almost the same spot, along a busy road in southeast Portland, where she's pitched a tent and parked her white van.
9: It was the cost of living that, that I couldn't find a place at first. And my daughter's out here, and uh, she'll keep in contact with me as long as I'm out here better than she does if I'm in a home, so I stay out here. I'm trying to get her off the streets.
30: For the past two days, temperatures have barely nudged above freezing. Portland is covered in snow, and the streets and sidewalks have been caked in ice. The city is neither accustomed to nor well-prepared for this kind of winter weather that took the region by surprise. And like many cities along the West Coast, Portland has a dramatic housing shortage and a growing population without stable housing. That includes more than 5,000 people living outside. In these times, we really all need to be
16: paying attention to each other and looking out for each other.
30: Rachel Pearl is deputy director of the Multnomah County Department of Human Services. The county includes the city of Portland. Pearl's team is helping coordinate emergency warming shelters, including more than 700 beds, which she says were a challenge for staff and volunteers to get up and running amid the nearly 11 inches of snow.
16: We definitely didn't anticipate the accumulation of snow.
30: The Multnomah County Medical Examiner's Office is investigating one person's death that may have been caused by hypothermia. Back on the street, 51-year-old Rebecca Martell says she's thought about going to one of the city's emergency shelters.
9: Last night is when I started thinking about it, you know, but we got really warm okay. this morning, so we're doing okay.
30: She was just released from the hospital after she said she was physically attacked. She was in her van with her boyfriend when the temperatures started to drop this week and the snow began to fall. Do you guys need anything?
9: Um, actually we're okay. We got everything, water, All right. um, clothing, yeah, everything.
30: Martel says people dropped off blankets, socks, sweaters, and other supplies. As I was leaving, a neighbor who had just made soup walked up to see if Martel was hungry. That's exactly the type of assistance local officials are hoping house neighbors can provide. Temperatures are expected to warm up slightly tomorrow, but forecasts call for more cold weather and even snow, meaning more challenges for people living on Portland's streets. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland, Oregon.
10: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 27 degrees in Boston at 519. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll visit Ukraine a year after the Russians began their invasion. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down 1% at 32,817. The S&P 500 also down 1% at 3970. And the Nasdaq was off almost 1.7% at 11,395. In other business news, the average price of home heating oil in the state continues to drop. The latest survey by the State Department of Energy Resources shows the average price at $4.27 a gallon. That's 16 cents lower than last week it's 35 cents more than this time last year it's 519
9: we are funded by you our listeners and by boston graduate school of psychoanalysis prepare for a dynamic career with a masters in mental health counseling 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice gre not required and state licensure eligible now accepting applications for fall more at bgsp.edu Coming
1: to City Space on Thursday, March 9th, Julian Shapiro Barnum He's the host of the web series Recess Therapy featuring hilarious interviews with kids. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear, very cold tonight. The low will be around 8 degrees. The wind chill will make it feel much colder, so bundle up. Increasing clouds tomorrow with a slight chance of snow after 4 p.m. The high around 22. Again, the wind chill will make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy with a chance of snow on Sunday. No accumulation is expected to high around 37. Support
15: for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of VIX Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur
11: Foundation at macfound.org.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Okay, here is some good news. Many children's hospitals are finally getting back to normal after the surge of respiratory viruses in early winter. For parents who waited hours or even days for their kids to get beds, one thing became clear, there just weren't enough of them. As Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports, this surge exposed cracks in how we care for sick kids, but it also highlighted possible solutions. One night last year, Dr. Mark Auerbach was sound
16: asleep. He was on vacation with his family in the rural Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. It was quiet and calm. And then suddenly he's woken up by his eight-year-old son saying, dad, I can't breathe. At first, Auerbach was able to help his son take deep breaths and get back to sleep.
4: But then he woke up again, and this time was really gasping for air and said, uh, he can't breathe, he can't breathe. And hearing that (laughs) sound um, recognized that we needed to get him to the hospital.
16: This is a very familiar experience for a lot of parents whose kids also had RSV. But Auerbach is a pediatric emergency medicine doctor at Yale. So he knew a lot of ERs just don't treat that many critically ill kids. Their infrastructure, their equipment, their staff, it's set up to treat adults, not kids. Hospitals can actually get graded on this, on whether their ER is what's called pediatric-ready. The average ER gets a D. So as Auerbach put his own kid in the car and starts speeding through the mountains, he is worried.
4: Frankly, am I going to need to treat him myself and find the equipment, and are they going to have the equipment?
16: The fact that ERs often are not set up to care for critically ill kids is a big part of why the surge got so bad this winter. Another one is that over the course of more than a decade, U.S. hospitals have cut nearly 20 percent of their pediatric units. That's because hospital beds for kids just don't make as much money as adult beds do. Dr. Larry Kosiolik is with Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago.
28: During a surge, when volumes may double or even more in, in some communities, that leaves a gap, a major gap, and children suffer the consequences of that.
16: That is exactly what happened this past fall. Lots of little kids whose immune systems had not been exposed to stuff during the pandemic got really sick with common viruses like RSV. They poured into ERs, but with fewer beds overall, hospitals were quickly overwhelmed. Dr. Chris Bryant is a pediatric infectious disease doctor at Norton Children's Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. And she says, we don't know if in the future we're going to be dealing with this big of a surge in flu, RSV, and other viruses. But I suspect all of those viruses will continue to circulate and cause their own surges. And if they all happen at the same time, we will be pressed for beds again. But this is not a hopeless situation. There are solutions. Number one... Getting more kids regular childhood vaccines, like the flu shot, which can keep them out of the hospital in the first place. Number two, insurers, namely Medicaid, could give hospitals more money for pediatric care. And number three, get more emergency rooms, the training and support that they need to handle critically ill and injured kids. Dr. Mark Auerbach says the vast majority of kids who go to ERs can and do have really good experiences. Like him and his son when they went into this rural er in the mountains
4: they rapidly assessed him uh, began very appropriate breathing treatments and medical treatments and after uh, about six hours of observation, uh, we are able to actually stop at Dunkin' Donuts on the way home and come and see his mom and his brother.
16: It turns out the ER that back went to had partnered with a big university hospital in the area. They had the right equipment, the right policies, the right staff training to handle seriously sick kids. And if every ER was like this, he says, it could save thousands of children's lives. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells.
10: Later this spring, millions of Americans who receive federal assistance to buy food will need to work in order to continue getting aid. This is under the SNAP program. But do these kinds of work requirements lead to economic self-sufficiency? Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, look at some new research.
38: SNAP stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It used to be called food stamps. People qualify for SNAP if their household income falls below certain levels. They get money on a debit card to buy food at, say, a supermarket. You can only use that for food that you tend to prepare at home.
26: Mary Zaki is an economist at the University of Maryland. She studies programs like SNAP.
38: It's not really meant to cover all your food needs, but it's supposed to supplement your income. There are also rules for a small subset of SNAP recipients, rules around working in order to keep getting benefits. These rules affect adults who are younger than 50, do not have a disability and do not have kids. And the work requirements were suspended at the start of the pandemic and will be going back into effect in a couple of months. Mary says there is a common refrain by policymakers who support these measures. They believe, OK, people will have work requirements and then that will promote self-sufficiency among those who receive government payments. and then. They don't need that aid anymore. Earlier this month, Mary and four other researchers published a paper that tried to answer the question, does unconditional government aid discourage work? Their paper said results of previous research on work requirements in SNAP have produced mixed results, likely because of the kinds of surveys that economists have relied on for data.
26: The breakthrough for Mary and her colleagues was getting access to granular data from one particular state. They studied a group in Virginia during and after the Great Recession.
1: In
38: Virginia, work requirements for SNAP were suspended between 2009 and 2013. This provided the researchers with a kind of natural experiment to see what happened in Virginia with and without work requirements. If SNAP participants went from unemployed to working or started earning more money, those outcomes would show up in the data. But when the researchers looked at employment and wages for this group 18 months after work requirements went back into effect, they couldn't find any improvement. There was basically zero increase in employment and earnings.
26: At the same time, SNAP participation among this group went down almost 40 percent. So 40 percent fewer people getting these benefits. So what does this show?
38: They are facing a more immediate barrier to working than the disincentives from receiving SNAP benefits. For example, homelessness or having fewer sources of income. So Mary says the ones that lost their SNAP benefits didn't have a lot of options, and it wasn't as simple as just going out and getting a job. If the goal is to produce self-sufficiency, then it's important to identify what these more immediate barriers are to working rather than going the route of work requirements Negotiations are starting now over the new farm bill, which is what funds SNAP. And that means work requirements and the future of SNAP are expected to be the subject of intense political debate. Waylon Wong.
26: Darian Woods, NPR News.
15: Support for Planet Money comes from Workday. An enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
11: This is... NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. 27 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, we'll hear from Vivian Yoon. Her new podcast, K-Pop Dreaming, is a personal and historical journey through Korean pop music. That's ahead here on WBUR. And today on The Common Podcast, the League of Women for Community Service is Boston's oldest black women-led organization. Learn more about this vital piece of Boston's black history. Find The Common on your podcast app.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolloran.com. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this
6: public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into morning edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how.
35: Just go to WBUR.org.
27: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. On today's first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration has announced it will send an additional $2 billion in military assistance to Ukraine. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the package includes several types of drones.
30: The U.S. will be supplying Ukraine with four separate kinds of drones and will send more than 1,000 of them all together. Both Russia and Ukraine are relying heavily on drones in an air war where pilots rarely take to the skies. The U.S. aid includes another batch of small switchblade drones which self-destruct when they crash into their target. The Pentagon also said it's sending systems to detect and counter the Russian drones, which often target Ukraine's electricity system. The Biden administration has now pledged or sent $32 billion in military assistance to Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion on February 24th of last year. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington.
27: The Pentagon is once again warning China against providing lethal weapons for Russia to use against Ukraine. Brigadier General Pat Ryder says the Defense Department will be keeping a close eye on that possibility in the weeks ahead.
31: We haven't seen them provide lethal aid to Russia yet, um, but we also have noticed that they haven't taken it off the table. And so you've heard Secretary Austin, Secretary Blinken and others warn China about the implications of providing lethal assistance to Russia.
27: China on Thursday called for a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine in a position paper on ending the war. But it was quickly dismissed by Western nations who have been highly critical of the growing partnership between Russia and China. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was down 336 points. This is NPR.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A year after Russia invaded Ukraine, there are millions of Ukrainian refugees that have crossed the border into other countries. Many have found their way to the United States. Caroline Davis of Services for the Refugee Resettlement Agency Accentria Care Alliance tells WBUR's Radio Boston her organization is helping hundreds of people now in Massachusetts.
20: These are individuals
34: who have walked through our agency doors seeking services. They are not coming through our official refugee program. So in addition to those 340, we've also
20: placed 41 direct refugees from Ukraine.
1: Last April, the state allocated $10 million to help with resettlement efforts. An audit of the Boston public school system shows the school district keeps inaccurate, incomplete and unreliable data. The audit for the State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education was released this week. It says Boston schools often place English language learners in classes that don't match their skill set. The report also says data on graduation rates and school bus performance are also incomplete. Boston Superintendent of Schools Mary Skipper says the district has already begun addressing several of the issues. The MBTA is publishing new information online about service slowdowns and the steps it's taking to improve safety. The T's website now features a dashboard that includes a speed restriction report, it shows that subway cars are forced to slow down on about 6% of the system's tracks because of infrastructure defects. The new site also lists the status of projects the T has begun to address the Federal Transit Administration's safety directives for the agency. Cold weather is making a comeback in the Boston area. Temperatures will be in the single digits overnight, and we don't expect to be above freezing until Sunday. When people try alternative heating methods during cold snaps, emergency calls for carbon monoxide poisoning increase. WBR's Martha Biebinger has more on what you can do to avoid making one.
7: Carbon monoxide is an invisible, odorless gas released when fossil fuels burn. To avoid poisoning, don't use gas-burning generators, kerosene lanterns, or other unventilated open flames inside your home or garage. UMass medical toxicologist Dr. Powell Graham says symptoms might start with a headache or fatigue.
8: And then as they progress, they can cause things like chest pain and confusion and seizure and dizziness, and ultimately people can lose consciousness or actually die.
7: Graham says carbon monoxide can also cause long-term brain and nerve damage. He recommends installing carbon monoxide detectors near sleeping areas. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
1: And it will be very cold tonight. Low temperature of 8 degrees. The wind chill will make it feel much, much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow. Slight chance of some snow after 4 p.m. The high around 22. But again, that wind chill will make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy with a chance of snow on Sunday. No accumulation is expected. The high will be around 37 degrees. Should be mostly sunny on Monday. The high around 35. Right now, it's 27 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract screen and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day more at
11: metamucil.com this is npr from npr news it's all things considered i'm mary louise kelly
10: and i'm ari shapiro it's been a somber day in ukraine a year to the day after russia invaded his country in the capital kiev president volodymyr zelensky told reporters Ukraine has survived the worst year in its modern history, and he said it needs the continued support of the world, not just the West, to prevail in its war against Russia. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports.
37: In a rare press conference, Zelensky answered questions for more than two hours while hammering home one big theme, that he will keep making a case to support Ukraine to allies and skeptics alike. Here he is speaking through an interpreter.
21: It's important that everyone to know that this is not our war. We are fighting for all of you.
37: Responding to a question from NPR, Zelensky rejected skepticism by some U.S. officials who said Ukraine would not be able to push all Russian forces out of the country. Zelensky said this would only happen if powerful weapons promised by the West did not come through quickly enough. He also said that this skepticism is not shared by
2: President Biden or most of the American people. I saw that American people, they support us. And there's another thing, believing in our victory. And this is what uh, uh, President Biden's uh, uh, visit was about. And when a journalist pointed out that support for Ukraine
37: is dropping in the U.S., Zelensky offered this warning. If they do not
2: change their opinion, if they do not understand us, if they do not support Ukraine, they will lose NATO, they will lose clout, they will lose the leadership position that they are joining in the world. But the Ukrainian
37: president also took lots of questions about countries with less friendly attitudes. Early in the press conference, he said he welcomed China's recent engagement on resolving the conflict. China issued what it called a position paper on the war today. And Zelensky said he also wants to travel to Latin America to meet face-to-face with leaders there who do not support Ukraine.
21: The Russian Federation has made a large informational campaign uh, on the territory of Latin American countries. We are interested in you learning the truth. We have shared values. We need to talk, really. We need to talk, and Ukraine has to talk to all the countries now.
37: Zelensky made very clear who he did not Want to talk to, Ukrainians who have not stayed to defend and rebuild the country.
21: All those who left on the 24th of February, all those who left Kiev. all those who were supposed to fight for the country, all these people have disappointed me.
37: In a speech earlier today, Zelensky gave credit to the resilience of the Ukrainian people and also thanked those who had stayed to fight. Zelensky spent the morning handing out medals to injured members of the military and the families of dead soldiers. At a makeshift memorial not far away, Olcha Komarnicka watched soldiers hang up a portrait of her husband, who was killed in action three months ago.
2: Today,
34: I, I have no words. It's hard. It's complicated. I can't even bring myself to say the name
37: Russia. She says this year has hardened her and her president as their country continues to fight for its life. Joanna Kakisis, NPR
11: News, Kyiv. 71 years ago, Kurt Vonnegut published his first novel. It was titled Player Piano. The book was based, in part, on Vonnegut's time working at General Electric. And it tells a dystopian tale of a society whose workers have been completely replaced by machines. Well, as the workers' discontent grows, they revolt, they destroy the machines, only to rebuild them because the workers miss them. The convenience, the quality of life they provide... Well, if this plot summary has got you thinking about any parallels between Vonnegut's fiction and our modern-day world, Robin Murphy is one step ahead of you. Murphy is a roboticist who writes in a piece out this week in the journal Science Robotics, quote, The overarching theme in player piano is that individual intelligence and creativity is a comforting lie that we tell ourselves about why we are irreplaceable by machines. Robin Murphy, welcome to All Things Considered. Well, thank you. I want to ask how you stumbled upon this book, and what about it got you thinking?
33: Well, a few years ago, uh, I had, of course, I had read Uh Slaughterhouse-Five. But somebody had said something, oh, Vonnegut, yeah, his first book, Player Piano, has automation robots. And I was like, what? And so I went back and reread it and said, holy cow, he saw a lot of things coming. Like what? And start maybe with the
11: character named... Rudy, just describe briefly what happens to him and how how that may have uh, we may
33: be seeing some of that play out today, well, Rudy's an interesting character. he's He's a minor character, but he shows up at key moments, and he used to be or is still is the best machinist there in Ilium, New York. But he lost his job, I'm very proud of how he lost his job because they had a robot learned by demonstration. He showed the robot how he did. They were able to record his motions. Learn from it, and now they didn't need him anymore. So he's very, very proud. But on the other hand, he's very, you know, superfluous. Yeah.
11: He's superfluous now because he's trained the robot to do what he does, but
33: even better. Yeah. And he's got a universal basic income. So Vonnegut had that going through there. And another nice point about, so, so Rudy is talking to a couple of the engineers who are kind of in this protected class of people, right? You know, you're only replacing the skilled workers. But at, toward the middle of the book, Paul, the lead engineer, begins to realize that the engineers are getting replaced by automation as well, that, that nobody is really that irreplaceable. Go back to the universal basic
11: income point. This is why would you pay a human to do something if they have rendered themselves superfluous, if you don't need them to do any more of their work because the robot can do it. I mean, that is something we've seen play out. There have been some experiments with universal basic income in various places in the world. Do you see that gaining more traction as robots and AI gain more traction?
33: Well, it certainly comes up, uh, you know, as an ethical thing about, well, robot displacement versus robot replacement to workers and the impact on society, and wouldn't it be great if everybody had a universal basic income? And Vonnegut was definitely not in the category that that was a win-win situation. That work added dignity, added purpose, added a great outlet for creativity. And he somewhat implies that we may, there would be like a... Eventually, the the innovation would tap out. If we kept just replacing people with automation, we wouldn't wouldn't go to the next step beyond.
11: So in the end, do you think Kurt Vonnegut was unusually prescient, or was the writing always on the wall for some of
33: these things? I personally think he was remarkably prescient. This was the first time we really saw this level of detail about robots replacing people. And yet, in a positive way, it's nobody's doing it to subjugate people or to put them out of work deliberately. They're trying to, to raise the standard of living. But how trying to make the world a better place, sometimes we can trip over ourselves doing that. Robin
11: Murphy, professor of computer science and engineering at Texas A&M University. Thank you.
33: Thank you for having me. This is NPR.
10: There have been 85 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year, according to the Gun Violence Archive. Stephen Dettelback's phone flashes with alerts each time. He runs the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. This week, he talked with NPR's Kerry Johnson about the scourge of gun violence and what ATF is doing about it.
6: My biggest fear is that people in this country will somehow become calloused to what's going on.
5: Steve Dettelback has been running the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives since last July. Shootings during that period have killed about 100 Americans every day.
6: This problem is a problem that is not just on the news. It's around the corner. It's in your neighborhood. If people in this country think that they're immune to it because of their zip code or their address, they're wrong.
5: For the first time in 20 years, ATF this month released data on crime guns. The report showed that guns purchased legally fall into the wrong hands and get brandished in violent crimes faster than ever. Another worry, Dettelback says, are deadly machine gun conversion devices that can fire far more rounds.
6: Machine gun conversion devices. These are little pieces of plastic or metal that people attach to a lawful semi-automatic weapon that turns it into a totally unlawful machine gun, can fire 1,000 rounds a minute. We're swimming in these devices. I've heard it from police departments all over the country.
5: ATF is a small agency with fewer than 50 agents in New York City, where the city's own police force numbers 36,000. That means partnerships with state and local law enforcement are important. Dettelback just hired the former president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police to help boost those relationships. ATF can offer local police more intelligence about guns used in crimes.
6: A large group of people may commit crimes, but it's a much smaller group who are trigger pullers and shooters who terrorize the neighborhoods we live in. And working with state and local law enforcement, We have crime gun intelligence centers springing up all over the country to make operational this data so we can identify the worst of the worst and get them out of the community.
5: ATF has moved to regulate so-called ghost guns, often sold in a kit, with parts bearing no serial number. But the agency faces persistent legal challenges, and the courts haven't always been a friendly venue. This month, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit threw out a law that bars people subject to a restraining order for domestic violence from possessing guns. Attorney General Merrick Garland has promised to appeal. The ATF director says in most parts of the country that law barring gun possession by domestic abusers is still in force. And he says Congress last year made clear that ban applies to boyfriends or partners, not just married people.
6: I think that there are a lot of people in this country who believe that protecting women from abusers with guns is a really important thing to do. We certainly believe that at ATF.
5: Dettelback, the U.S. attorney in Ohio during the Obama years, is operating in a more complicated and politically fraught environment now. Gun safety groups are pressing the Biden administration to do more, and gun rights groups are pushing back.
6: In our constitutional system, it's Congress to pass the laws. We have the ability that Congress has given us to define some of the terms that they pass in their laws. That's what we do at ATF. That's all we can do.
5: Last year, Congress created two new standalone gun crimes, including one that cracks down on firearms trafficking. Dettelback says they've charged 30 defendants under those new statutes, with more cases in the works. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
11: Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR and org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 26 degrees in Boston at 549. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so on WBUR, a federal judge is set to rule in a case challenging the FDA's approval of an abortion pill decades ago. That and more still ahead on All Things Considered here on WBUR. And check back on the news with WBUR again this evening. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're running errands or heading home from work.
26: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum with Lyle Ashton Harris, our first and last love an exploration of identity and legacy. Tickets at brandeis.edu slash
1: rose. In the forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight, low temperature around eight degrees, but the wind chill will make it feel much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow, slight chance of snow after 4 p.m., the high near 22, but again, the wind chill will make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy, chance of snow on Sunday, no accumulation is expected, the high around 37. Right now it's 26 degrees in Boston, this is WBUR.
21: On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we put the important questions to Stephen Colbert. Is it weird to have all that awkward sex on camera with Adam Driver? It's not weird. And <laughs> <laughs> Peter Sagal, join us for an all-star Wait, Wait this week with Stephen, Michaela Schifrin, Rob Reiner, basically
26: everybody but Adam Driver. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
32: And I'm Elsa Chang. When Vivian Yoon was growing up in L.A.'s Koreatown during the 1990s and 2000s, she was sort of ashamed of the fact that she was this huge, passionate fan of K-pop. I mean, at the time, K-pop just wasn't the global music sensation and multi-billion dollar industry it is today. And though you knew all the words to her favorite K-pop songs, she wanted to appear more interested in American culture.
39: My dad was very, I mean, he was very American, right? Like, he grew up in the States. He was in the U.S. Army. And so I think that's sort of where a lot of this stemmed from, right? My, my desire to, to really be seen as American as opposed to Korean or Korean-American.
32: Well, Yoon has embraced her love of Korean popular music, and she is out with a new podcast from LAist Studios. It's called K-pop Dreaming. The series traces K-pop's rise to the international stage and how Yoon's own family history and identity weave into that. We started with a song from 25 years ago, one that Yoon cannot stop singing even today. It's called One Time, by the group One Time.
35: One Time!
39: <laughs> one, time it's one Time for <laughs> your mind <laughs> 너에게 주겠어 you <laughs> mm.
32: <laughs> what was it about One Time that tapped into you more deeply? Like was it was it the hip-hop sound they brought, the fact that two of your members were Korean American?
39: Talk about what it was. It's really hard to distill and define like what makes a group cool. Mm-hmm. But for me and my friends growing up in K-Town, we just knew that one time was cool. They just had an it factor that some of the other K-pop groups didn't have, you know? Um They weren't going for like a cute, wholesome poppy image. And there was something that felt very familiar. Growing up in LA, like hip hop is such a big aspect of like the culture, right? I went to LA high and you really could not escape hip hop. There was something about one time that felt like home because of that connection to hip hop and, you know, American culture.
32: Well, there's no doubt now that K-pop has become this immense global phenomenon. You talk about a distinct moment when there was no doubt K-pop had blown up internationally.
37: I'm
19: sorry,
32: I'm sorry, I'm doing the dance right now. Can you describe (laughs) what it was like to watch this song catch on fire in America in 2012, to like watch everyone doing the invisible horse dance, reenacting the video? And why it was kind of funny to you that this song out of all the songs was the song that blew
39: up. Honestly, it was so confusing. <laughs> like it was such a weird time because up until that point, like I had never heard non-Koreans really talk about K-pop or just even be aware that the music existed and all of a sudden you have people like Oppa and Kangnam. like those are very, very Korean words. And so to see like all these, you know, average American people suddenly singing it and doing the dance. um, It was very, very surprising and shocking and confusing. You know, it was really complicated. But that song was really, really surprising too because it was so culturally specific, I think. You know, it's all satire and parody about this neighborhood in Seoul called Gangnam. And he's really parodying the lifestyles of like the obscenely wealthy people who live there. So it was also really surprising just because of how specific the song's content was this is
32: probably a good time to step back and talk about what is k-pop anyway like if you were to describe the sound of k-pop today what are the elements of that sound
39: you know we talked to a lot of different people k-pop experts and reporters and academics and that seems to be the million dollar question of what is k-pop because it really is hard to say you know The thing that a lot of K-pop producers say that sets Korean pop music apart is bongjak, um, or bong, or the bong factor, bong feel. Mm -hmm. That element really comes from this century-old genre of Korean music called trot. One person describes bong as coming from the Korean blues, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And it's rooted in, like, a century of hardship and suffering um, that the Korean people endured throughout history. So like you had the Japanese occupation, then you had the Korean War, and then you had like military dictators um, coming in in the 80s. And so Korea has had this really tumultuous uh, and sort of tragic history. And that's really where this element comes from, bong or bongjak, that gives K-pop its distinct flavor. So like the H.O.T song, Candy, which sounds super upbeat and poppy. The first line, like the lyrics are literally like, I was thinking about breaking up with you the other day. Dang. Those are the kinds of things that you'll see a lot in Korean lyrics. And it's this juxtaposition of these different kinds of ideas of like happy and sad, uplifting, joyful, grieving, like all these different things are mixed together. And I think it's a really good example of Korean culture and, you know, Korean history and Koreans in general. Like, I feel like, you know, we are a very resilient people when you look at our history and we're South Korea's today, specifically.
32: I mean, after listening to you explain that, it made me hear K-pop differently. And I'm curious, how much has making this podcast helped you think differently about your own relationship to Korean culture and your own heritage?
39: That was the biggest surprise for me. I did not expect to come out of this as a changed person. Mm. But I can really say there's something so powerful about knowing the history of your people and your community and where you come from and seeing the forces that have shaped your identity Knowing your history can lead to a certain kind of acceptance. And for me, I didn't realize I was missing that in my own life. And I didn't realize, like, how much of those identity issues I struggled with growing up were still impacting me until I started diving into the subject of this podcast. And, you know, really talking with these different people and exploring these histories, it's helped me reconcile the two halves of my identity the Korean and the American and see where I fit you know as a second generation Korean American person from Los Angeles Mm. so it's it's been really really powerful and and surprisingly so
32: I'm so glad to hear that Vivian Yoon's new podcast is called K-pop dreaming thank you so much for sharing this time with us Thank you so much
18: for having me.
23: so
36: crazy. That's a daydream. I'm the
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for more than 95 years supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 26 degrees at about a minute before 6 o'clock. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, SNAP, the Federal Nutrition Assistance Program, will again require some recipients to work in order to receive aid. But new research raises questions about whether work requirements actually work. That's ahead on WBUR.
36: I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7
14: WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR,
9: Boston's NPR news station.
0: There are now political attacks attempting to question the legitimacy of scientists, and doctors.
1: A federal judge is expected to rule in a case challenging the FDA's approval of an abortion pill some 20 years ago. It's Friday, February 24th. This is WBR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on the case now unfolding in Texas. Also ahead, traveling with an aid flight into government-held areas in Syria show problems that go back before the recent earthquake, like poverty and loss from a civil war. And a year into the war in Ukraine, evidence of alleged war crimes by Russian soldiers is mounting. Coming up at 6.30 on WBUR, it's Marketplace. It's 6.01. Now this news.
31: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Diplomats at the United Nations are talking a lot about what it will take to end Russia's war in Ukraine. China put forward some ideas today, calling for negotiations with no preconditions. But the U.S. and Europe are skeptical, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman.
20: Secretary of State Antony Blinken told the U.N. Security Council that no one wants peace more than the Ukrainian people, but he says it has to be just and durable.
19: For peace to be just,
1: it must uphold the principles at the heart of the UN Charter. Sovereignty,
6: territorial integrity, independence,
20: China has laid out a 12-point proposal which calls for negotiations to resume. China's ambassador says his country is ready to play a responsible, constructive role. China has been a tacit supporter of Russia, having never outright criticized or condemned the invasion. Secretary Blinken says any peace that legitimizes Russia's seizure of land by force would weaken the U.N. charter. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
31: Firefighting wastewater containing toxic chemicals from a trained realm in Ohio is being disposed of in the Houston suburb of Deer Park. Houston Public Media's Katie Watkins says about two million gallons are being sent there for disposal.
12: Texas Molecular is injecting the waste deep into the ground at its facility. VP of Energy and Innovation at the University of Houston, Ramanan Krishnamurti, says this is a common method for disposing of toxic water.
13: One of the sort of the fundamental reasons why is it being moved from Ohio to to Houston because The expertise to handle it, the monitoring of it is much more robust in the Texas and Houston areas compared to what is done in Ohio.
12: Krishnamurti says the process is safe and regulated, but if done incorrectly, it can cause seismic activity or contaminate the groundwater. I'm Katie Watkins in Houston.
31: First Lady Jill Biden arrived in Kenya today on the last leg of her five-day trip to Africa from Nairobi. Michael colloquios more.
19: Upon her arrival on a sunny, windy afternoon, Jill Biden was received by Rachel Ruto, wife of Kenya's President William Ruto. During her three-day visit, Biden is expected to hold talks with local officials here, aimed at strengthening ties between Kenya and the United States. She will also draw attention to the food security crisis impacting the Horn of Africa, which is currently experiencing one of its worst droughts in decades. Biden will also hold discussions that focus on issues regarding women and youth empowerment, as well as environmental conservation. The First Lady Strip comes ahead of expected visits to the region later this year by senior U.S. administration officials. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi.
31: Stocks closed sharply lower on the final trading day of the week. All three of the major U.S. stock market indices losing 1% or more amid concerns the Fed has further to go in its fight against inflation. The Dow dropped 336 points. This is NPR
1: this is 90.9 wbur good evening i'm steve brown in boston today ukrainians in massachusetts are mourning on the one-year anniversary of russia's all-out invasion of their country ivanka roberts is president of the ukrainian cultural center in new england
2: last night around 9 p.m i felt anxiety more than usual and i couldn't understand what was happening and then i realized that that was exactly a year ago I started getting notification about rockets flying towards Ukraine.
1: Robert says today is a sad day for all of her fellow Ukrainians. Still, she says she feels optimistic that Ukraine will ultimately win the war. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss says Americans need to continue to support Ukraine with whatever they need right now. He spoke today on WBUR's Radio Boston. WBUR's Amanda Beland has more.
22: Hawkencloss says Ukraine is likely to mount a counter-offensive attack this spring. And the success of that action is crucial for Ukraine to make positive ground in the war.
8: We need to support Ukraine getting all the way to the sea and being able to cut off Russia's access to Crimea as the end of the beginning, I guess I would say, so that we can move on to a stage where Ukraine can start to actually retake um, Crimea and the Donbass.
22: In the meantime, Auchincloss says financial and moral support for Ukraine is pivotal as the country enters year two of this invasion. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland.
1: Some local cities are opening warming centers as cold weather has arrived again. chill values are expected to drop below zero tonight and tomorrow across the state. A warming center in Lowell opened last hour at the city's senior center on Broadway Street. It will remain open through Sunday morning. Somerville has opened the Armory Building tonight as a warming center. It will do the same tomorrow night. The MBTA has had a busy two days dealing with commute disruptions. Ice buildup on the rails forced Orange Line trains to stop outside of Wellington Station last night. Then this morning, a piece of repair equipment derailed on the red line near Park Street. Interim T General Manager Jeff Gonneville says the agency is investigating what happened and planning for solutions.
13: We may not have all of the answers right now, but I want to be very clear that we are working on developing those solutions and fully recognize that we owe our customers who are relying on the system every single day those answers that they certainly want and deserve.
1: Both incidents required shuttle buses to be used. Rafael Devers had an RBI single as the Red Sox beat Northeastern University 5-3 in the first spring training action of the season. Six pitchers got, uh, each got an inning worth of work for the Sox. The traditional exhibition game with Northeastern was not played in 2021 because of the pandemic or last year because of the lockout. In the forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight, low around 8 degrees. The wind chill will make it feel much colder. Increased clouds tomorrow, a slight chance of some snow. After 4 p.m., the high will be near 22 degrees. Again, that wind chill will make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy with a chance of snow on Sunday. No accumulation is expected, however. The high will be around 37 degrees. We're now 26 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
26: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
10: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A federal judge in Texas is expected to rule in a case challenging the Food and Drug Administration's approval of an abortion pill some 20 years ago. If the judge sides with the anti-abortion group that brought the case, and he is expected to, it could have ripple effects on drug approvals as we know them. Well, NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here in the studio to explain. Welcome, Sydney. Hi. Okay, I want to start with the stakes because I'm trying to understand how this... One case, about just one pill, has the potential to change how the FDA okays medicines? Mm -hmm. The case is over mifeprestone, which is used in first
12: trimester medication abortions in combination with another pill called misoprostol. The anti-abortion group that's suing Alliance Defending Freedom is basically saying that the FDA never had the authority to approve mifeprestone in the first place. They say the way the agency approved it required them to call pregnancy an illness, which it is not. I spoke to Harvard Medical School's Amit Sarpatwari.
13: But the preamble to this rule makes it clear that what FDA meant was conditions or diseases that can be serious for certain populations in some or all of their phases, uh, which would include pregnancy.
12: The lawsuit is also questioning whether the FDA correctly considered safety and effectiveness when it granted this approval, which is interesting for a drug that's been on the market for 20 years. Indeed. Vice President Kamala Harris talked about that this morning
0: most americans could look in their medicine cabinet where they will find medication prescribed by a doctor that they use on a daily basis and have available to them because the fda engaged in a process of determining the efficacy and safety of that medication mifepristone is no exception to that process
12: She said those who attack that process should look in their medicine cabinets and be prepared for the repercussions of those decisions.
11: Hmm. Okay, Sydney, practically speaking, what would change if the judge, as expected, does rule in favor of the anti-abortion group?
12: Well, part of what could change is that women could only get one kind of medication abortion using one pill, the second one, which is less effective and more painful. And it could also set this precedent for court interference in FDA expert decision making. So for the last 60 odd years, the FDA has been the global leader in approving drugs based on rigorous safety and effectiveness standards. And now a court could like undo that. So that could have a chilling effect on the FDA, which broadly doesn't have the resources to get sued a lot. It's expensive to the taxpayer. It limits other things the agency can do. So the FDA might be more cautious about approvals. Here's Sarpetwari again.
13: If a court is willing to say in the face of this evidence that this drug is not safe or is ineffective, then what else might it potentially say is unsafe or ineffective?
12: and in a politically charged climate that could mean drugs for future hormone therapies for gender affirming care prep for hiv prevention so those drug companies might not want to invest in the development to begin with if that you know risk is that the court could just overturn the approval anyway and the fda again not wanting to be sued might look backwards
11: in time and do withdrawals In a case where the stakes are so high, as you've just filled in, um, do we expect that, however the judge rules, there will be an appeal?
12: So yes, I'm told this will likely go to an appeals court and make it all the way up to the Supreme Court, according to Robin Feldman at UC Law SF. It seems like this was basically written for the Supreme Court. So in the meantime, another case has been filed today, actually by several states' attorneys general, challenging the FDA's restrictions on mifeprestone that have been in place since its approval, and they're arguing the drug is safe and effective, and those restrictions aren't really necessary. I'm told they could file an injunction against the FDA to prevent it from removing the drug from the market. So you really have these, like, dueling lawsuits one by conservatives and one by Democrat-led states.
11: And PR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin, thank you. Thank you.
10: We have a rare look now at the earthquake damage inside the government-controlled part of Syria. Few outside journalists have been able to get there. It's a nearly closed country for reporters and tightly controlled. But the quake damage is extensive, and the needs stretch back far beyond that. NPR's Aya Batrawi went there on a relief flight run by the government of the United Arab Emirates. She joins us from the Syrian city of Jabla. And first, tell us more about where you are and what you're seeing.
14: Yeah, well, first of all, we don't quite understand what the death toll is in the government parts of Syria. There haven't been any recent figures, but one doctor told me that in the area that I'm at, the Latakia government on the Mediterranean coast, there have been 805 deaths and over 1,300 hospitalizations. And in other areas of Syria, it is far worse in the North. However, we have seen, um, collapsed buildings, buildings that are cracked and unlivable, but the real devastation here is from the civil war. And that is what struck me because this is a government stronghold, an area where the government is firmly in control, but this is clearly a country that has been run down by 12 years of conflict. Homes in this area of Jeble, south of Latakia, where I was today, where I'm speaking to you from, are half-built, shoddy construction. There's unfinished stairways. And so many of these homes are barely standing after the earthquakes, and they're unlivable. There was a family I met that is sleeping next to the rubble of a home where people died, and kids are sleeping together under a tarp. Um, There's wild dogs roaming around at night. It's, It's still bitter cold outside. And the mothers I spoke to tell me they're not even sleeping at all.
10: Wow. I understand you went out with relief workers from the Emirati Red Crescent and met people who were struggling. What did they tell you?
14: Yeah, I went to these villages and towns far outside of the cities where there's almost no outside visibility. And Ari, people tell me all they want is to secure food for their kids and a safe future for them. But people are suffering. I mean, every home I visited eventually at one point or another, Grown men and women would break into tears about their situation. One woman opened her fridge for me, and um, this is, you know, something she was embarrassed to show me. There was no food inside. She told me for breakfast she'd had some olives and tea. Um, I saw kids who don't go to school because their parents can't even afford paper and pencils for them. I mean, schools here are free. and you you walk around and you see that there's no stores. There's there's maybe small stands with potatoes, tomatoes, and onions, but even few people can afford that. And there's certainly no butcher shops, no clothing stores, playgrounds. The city is dark at night. Their electricity is patchy, and that's all because of the war.
10: Hmm. Big picture. What are the longer-term reasons for the economic problems that you're seeing?
14: Yeah, I mean, look, Syria's bombing of the opposition prompted some pretty wide-scale U.S. sanctions. But those are supposed to allow for humanitarian supplies and medicine. The reality is different, of course. Banks would rather not deal with Syria at all. And so the result is a lack of critical aid. I met with Dr. and Makhlouf. He's a senior physician at one of the hospitals here in Latakia. <laughs> he says they're missing MRI machines, CAT scan machines, heartbeat monitoring machines, and medicines for cancer, even anesthesia. He says all of this is difficult to bring in. They're unable to purchase these, these things to bring them in. Um, and as I crisscrossed uh, villages and towns here, I was talking to people about how much they're earning a month, what are they living off of, and families of six and more were telling me they earn 100,000 liras a month. That's around $14 a month for an entire family. And before the war, that amount would have been $2,000 a month. And so what I saw the Emirati Relief Forces here doing today on the ground goes far beyond earthquake relief. They were giving out cash in hand to people who cannot afford cancer treatment. They were giving out boxes of food to orphans. And people I met here were asking me, when's the government coming to help? Or, you know, do you know when the government is going to come check on our home? And um, it just shows that they haven't seen any help yet from the government.
10: That's NPR's Aya Batraoui in Jabla, Syria. Thank you.
14: Thanks, Ari.
11: Last night, Dr. Meredith Gray said goodbye to Seattle and Grace Sloan Memorial Hospital. So the end of my story is not any kind of ever after. Because I'm still alive.
10: I'm still here.
11: And the
36: sun
15: still rises on my life.
10: Dr. Grey, played by actress Ellen Pompeo, will be stepping back from ABC's hit medical drama Grey's Anatomy after 19 seasons and more than 400 episodes. Pompeo's character is leaving for Boston. Pompeo herself will stay on as an executive producer.
11: Back in December, Pompeo had told Drew Barrymore she was ready to do something new. I feel
12: super happy. Really? Yeah. Um, Listen, the show has been incredible
16: to me. and and I love I've loved a lot of the experience. Listen, it's just I, I gotta, you know, I gotta mix it up a little bit.
10: Gray will be remembered for her many close calls with death, her deep friendships, and her enduring romance with Dr. Derek Shepard.
17: Derek, I love you.
18: In a really, really big, pretend to like your taste in music. Let you eat the last piece of cheesecake. Hold a radio over my head outside your window. Unfortunate way that makes me hate you. Love you. So pick me. Choose me. Love me.
11: Ah, make dreamy. Well, her last episode, as the show's lead, came to an understated conclusion. There were no epic montages, no flashbacks, no guest appearances from former cast members, not even a refrain from chasing cars.
10: There was, however, a celebration at the hospital where the show's last two original characters paid tribute to Dr. Gray. Here's Dr. Miranda Bailey and Dr. Richard Weber.
0: You know, once upon a time, you were the bane of my existence, but no, you grew up to become one of my greatest points of pride. I'm. Okay, go, go.
19: Dr. Gray. What Dr. Bailey's trying to say is this place won't be the same without you.
11: We will still hear her character narrate episodes, as she's done for many of them, and she could visit every now and then. But for many Grey's Anatomy fans, the show just won't be the same without Meredith.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 26 degrees in Boston at 619. Coming up at 630 on WBUR, it'll be Marketplace. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow down 1% at 32,817. The S&P 500 also down 1% at 3970. And the Nasdaq was off almost 1.7% at 11,395. In other business news, workers at another Starbucks in Massachusetts are seeking to unionize. Employees at the Somerville Avenue location in Somerville today filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board. Nationwide, more than 285 stores have taken steps to unionize. The employees in Somerville say they want higher wages and better benefits.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Turn
35: your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash cars.
1: The forecast, mostly clear, very cold tonight, a low of 8 degrees, but the wind chill will make it feel much, much colder. Increasing clouds tomorrow, we'll have a slight chance of some snow after 4 p.m., the high around 22 degrees. Again, that wind chill is going to make it feel colder. Mostly cloudy, chance of some snow on Sunday, but no accumulation is expected. The high will be around 37 degrees. Right now it's 26 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
9: WBUR supporters include the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. GardnerMuseum.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
9: And I'm Mary
11: Louise Kelly. A year ago today, in the early morning, Russia invaded Ukraine. Intelligence officials in the West had expected the capital, Kiev, to fall in days. And while that grim prediction did not come true, the past year has brought plenty of heartache. It's also brought mounting evidence of alleged war crimes by Russian soldiers. We're going to zoom in now on one week at the end of March 2022, when the suburbs around Kiev were liberated after a month of occupation by Russian troops.
8: We had heard stories of Russians targeting civilians, of mass graves, of summary executions, of finding dead civilians. That's NPR's Nathan Rot, who was in Ukraine at the time. We knew that that was kind of happening, but nobody had really been to these areas to kind of see what was left. The town of
11: Bucha, northwest of Kiev, had just been liberated, and Nate was among busloads of reporters driven in to see it. And a warning to listeners, this story contains graphic descriptions of violence.
8: Every window had been blasted out. Bridges that had been destroyed. Like giant craters in the ground that you could park a car in. And there was one street that we walked down in particular where there was so much ash on the street, it felt like you were walking on sand. You know, it felt like you were walking on the beach. And that was just ash from burnt homes and burnt equipment uh, in the middle of the city streets. At the end of that street, we just saw a guy who was kind of sitting outside watching all of us journalists walk around and take pictures and everything. and. I just kind of walked up to him and started talking to him with the help of our translator, Luca. And uh, and the guy was just immediately like, follow me. You want to come in here? You know, we walked through his yard to his backyard over broken glass.
40: And
8: the whole side of his house is blasted open. I mean, It almost looks like a kid's dollhouse where you can, like, see the cross-section of the house. You're, like, looking in it. I mean, the whole side of the house was gone. When Russian troops first came into Bucha, his story that he told us was that essentially like they threw a grenade into his house, yelled for people to come out, started a fire that was in their living room. I
23: started uh, extinguishing the fire. I tried to. You can see it right there.
8: Fire happened. He and his daughter and his son-in-law had raced outside and were trying to Put out the fire.
23: There's three soldiers. They they yelled. They yelled at us. Said uh, hands up. I we showed them our hands. Walked
8: out. And Russian troops came up, started questioning him, asking him, where are the Nazis, where are the Nazis, where are the Nazis? And, you know, they were all like, we're not Nazis, I don't know what you're talking about. He had this horrific story of basically his son-in-law was um, taken out through his front gate.
23: So they took uh, my daughter's husband, Oleg, outside. They uh, ripped the clothes off him. Put him on the knees and shoot him in the head. And his
8: body laid there for weeks, um, right in front of right in front of his
23: house. I was in the mood of sitting after sitting in a month in the basement to just uh, I wanted to walk outside and just to get shot
22: because I couldn't deal with it anymore.
8: the language war crime was being used everywhere. Ukrainians, from the first time we got off the bus in Bucha, they were like, we are here to show you Russian war War War. crimes. I think a lot of international leaders, right after Bucha, that's when you started hearing war crimes. Uh, Like That was the the moment that put that kind of into the conversation, I feel like.
11: That was NPR's Nathan Rott. Another journalist who spent time in Bucha speaking with survivors was Masha Gessen, a staff writer at The New Yorker. For Gessen, that work came with a deep
24: sense of deja vu. I had done this kind of work 20 and 30 years earlier in, in Chechnya, during the first war in Chechnya in 1994 90, during the second war in Chechnya in 99-2001, And I had seen Russian troops behaving this way, and I had interviewed survivors of Russian war crimes who had told the same kinds of stories in Chechnya as they were now telling me in Ukraine. And um, I knew that it is normal for the Russian military to behave this way. This is how Russia prosecutes wars.
11: Morning Edition host Leila Fadel spoke with Gessen about their experience reporting on war crimes and the aftermath.
25: When it comes to accountability, does that what does that look like? Can it go as as high as Putin and is there a way to hold the president of Russia accountable?
24: So for some people it's most important to see Putin and people who actually gave important orders prosecuted. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen unless Russia is militarily defeated. I think for some other people, it is more important to see the people who pulled the trigger, the people who fired, who personally fired rockets at apartment buildings, the people who personally tortured, raped, and executed civilians hmm. to be prosecuted. There's an argument that that's not so important because they're not in charge. They're just part of this giant sort of organism that carries out aggression, but there's a counter-argument that the whole reason that this is possible is because individuals are never punished.
25: Hmm. I mean, Russia has, you describe, documenting these same kinds of crimes in Chechnya. Then again, they happened in Aleppo and there has never been accountability or a red line cross that the world has reacted to in this way. Why?
24: The facile answer is that the world doesn't care as much about um, Chechnya, which is Muslim, an obscure part of Russia. I'm afraid the same can be said of Syria. The world doesn't care as much about people perceived as non-white and and, and Muslim. I think that there's a lot of truth to what I just said. I don't think it's—it's not the complete answer. Yeah. It also has a lot to do with opportunity it was nearly impossible for international investigators and journalists to get to Aleppo, to get to Chechnya during the Second War in Chechnya. The Russian human rights group Memorial did bring a number of cases to the European Court on Human Rights against Russian war criminals in Chechnya and won some of those cases. But the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction over what Russia was doing and what is legally its own territory. So part of it is access, part of it is jurisdictional issues. Ukraine is, you know, it sounds horrible to say it, but there's in a way an opportunity to finally hold Russia accountable for what its military has been committing systematically for at least 30 years.
11: That's Masha Gessen, staff writer at The New Yorker, speaking with Morning Edition host Leila Fadel. Then you can hear more reflections on the war in Ukraine by checking your local member station for NPR's special report, Russia's War in Ukraine One Year On. To find your member station, go to npr.org slash stations.
10: This is NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. It's going to be very cold tonight. It'll be clear the low will be around 8 degrees. The wind chill is going to make it feel much colder. Right now it's 25 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex
26: Museum. Presenting Spirits. Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org.